Hello, and welcome back to the Ask Jags podcast. I'm here with Captain Andrew McCaffrey, who is a, a assistant staff judge advocate at MacDill Air Force Base, and we're talking to him about his paper that he submitted for the National Security Law Writing Competition that is put on by the Ops and International Law Division here at the Air Force JAG School. This year's topic was how national security law impacts America's strategic competition in the gray zone. Captain McCaffrey's submission was titled The Red, White, and Blue in the Gray Zone and explores some really fascinating topics. Uh, Captain McCaffrey, before we get started talking in depth about your paper, could you just introduce us and give us some of your your background and how you got interested in this this topic and uh, where you're uh, where you're at now. Uh, before I joined the military, I was here. Uh, this is my first assignment here at Latin McGill and Space. American government. I'm currently and the part of being a Latin claim, teacher, chief of legal assistance, and I've been transitioning over to be the chief of military justice, Roman history, Greek history, Persian history, and so I think there's a lot of timeless lessons we can learn from that. Um, and you know, the the gray zone might be a new term, but the phenomena that it encompasses and describes are certainly nothing new. And so. I've been interested in this topic for a long time, and I try to bring that interest to bear in this in this paper. Outstanding, yeah. Thinking through that now, I think you're. Uh, I can see. I can see how those sort of influences came into this topic and how they how they really bleed over. So, before we do some deep dives, can you give us just the uh, two to three sentence elevator speech version of your main thesis and illustrations that you used in your paper? Absolutely. So what it comes down to, in my opinion, is that the Union, the United States, isn't simply a fact. It's a construct. It's something that requires constant maintenance, constant upkeep, and that means legal upkeep as well. And the Union is vulnerable to gray zone threats, both foreign and domestic gray zone threats. However, there are tools, legal tools available that have been used in the past and can be used more or have simply been not used and that should be employed for the first time to bolster the nation's security against gray zone threats. Yeah, I think that's really neat. You're, you start off with the uh, the oath of office mentioning how we, we all, many of us in government service and military service, swear to defend this uh, nation against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I thought it was very cool how you explored this gray zone idea from both ends. Uh, nearly everything I've read so far has been, uh, when it comes to gray zone uh, discussions, has been about foreign threats. You know, specifically our our big uh, main competitors in Russia and China. Well, um, yeah. So I think the gray zone. It's a it's a term used to describe ambiguous competition, and the the definition that I found and that I included in my paper is you know competitive interactions among and within state and non-state actors that fall between the traditional peace and war duality. And so one of the things I really latched onto was that non-state actors bit, and I, th- I thought that element of the gray zone definition read that in light of the oath of office that both military members and civil service members take kind of triggered this realization that you know, domestic extremism is as much a gray zone threat as 
anything that our near peer adversaries in Russia and China are doing? Yeah, so starting with the, we'll start foreign like you did in your paper. You focused on Russia and its actions um, against and sometimes with these other Eastern European states. So can you kind of just start with the, the history that you started with um, the last 20-some-odd uh, years of uh, Putin and his, his apparent strategies and goals and what he's done about those and then what sort of gray zone activity in there that you've been, that Russia has been engaging in? Yes, sir. So one of the terms that I've used a lot to describe Russia's actions under the Putin regime is hostile interventionism. And that encompasses and includes a lot of gray zone activity. Typically, we see the gray zone activity on the front end, and then it is followed up by more traditional military activity. So I just went through chronologically. Uh, first example I talked about was Russian involvement in Georgia in the early part of the 21st century. I remember you know, when it was uh, 2008, I was watching the news and I saw you know, artillery shelling. And I thought, I never thought I'd see, you know, artillery shelling as something happening in the in the news, you know, amongst um, traditional powers like Russia, but there it was. Um, however, as I delved a little deeper and did some research, you know, the shooting started in 2008, but the conflict, I think, can be traced back to at least November of 2003. November 2003, Georgia was having parliamentary elections. There was a dispute. And again, this is going to be a theme that we see emerging um, contested elections, rigged elections, and there was unrest, and the Russians took advantage of that situation um, to support the faction that they favored against the faction that the United States favored. So um, that was 2003. Escalation in the gray zone continued over the course of several years. Um, for example, in 2006, uh, Georgia arrested four Russian officers on espionage, excuse me, espionage charges. Um, so already, you know, we can see two years ahead of active military hostilities, Russian forces you know, laying the groundwork. Um, of course, the Russians were using their own laws against the Georgians. Um, economic pressures, import bans, forced deportations under dubious circumstances. And ultimately, what we saw was support from the Russians for secessionist forces within Georgia in South Ossetia. And that is when I think the general public started to tune in, pay attention to the situation, and it moved from a gray zone competition to more traditional warfare. Right, and it it seems like a theme. You're going to walk us through some more episodes of this, but it seems like Russia has has now kind of come up with this formula of softening their target for months or years with um, especially um, election involvement and influence operations, and then uh, like you said, the diplomatic, economic, everything they can, sort of ramping up hostilities to the point where uh, there are a few options left 
and and also the cost of them just taking military action have gone down because of their the actions that they've taken to put you know sympathetic people in office and and that sort of thing. Yeah, what can, what examples can you give us from that uh, the build up? Right, to I think the, that, that's uh, exactly Russian the, the theme, the pattern of that in I've observed, and that oh, I, yeah, we can talk about that. Um, highlight in my paper, uh, so, Georgia, of course, I think was the first the example, example. I guess we could say um, in then 2014. Another example um, that's definitely around. Bringing an example right now, Yanukovych, the Russian involvement in. Ukraine, it's not in the, the current conflict, but the conflict uh, that on him happened in, in 2014, he suddenly regained to sign a pattern European electoral unification agreement, which Russia he had informally supported, rather vocally, in fact, Russians um, using support agreement for support participation in within a sovereign country, Kovic's decision to justify the use massive of military force. So that's where hostile interventionism that I discussed earlier, eight of the 447 you know, members earlier I mentioned in Parliament, my experience in the last you're talking about, that led to protests, Roman counter-protests in history, and, uh, and I remember Russians took advantage of that situation. Professor who engaged in Ukraine and annex centuries, the Roman Empire never and waged that, like an that. offensive war. Was they waged by defensive Russian wars influence. until that city uh, controlled the entire Italian on that agreement. And Exactly. That's hostile interventionism. Yeah. It's nothing new in, in historical terms. Fascinating terms. to look at how they. And we see <laughs> Russia engaging in very, so very much, similar uh, acts here in the 21st century. In that part of the world. So moving on to uh, a country that probably uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and and expose my own ignorance. I didn't know a ton about until the last year or so. Haven't haven't read or heard things about Belarus. And what's gone on there nearly as much as I had Georgia and Ukraine. So tell us um, what you uh, what you wrote about Belarus and how that plays into this whole pattern. Sure thing. So uh, Belarus, key strategic location out there in Eastern Europe, and right now key strategic ally for Putin's Russia. Um, you know, you look at the map before the current Russian invasion of Ukraine began. The Russians were marshalling forces within Belarus, which is, of course, very close to Kyiv, the Ukrainian cap uh, capital. Um, but fast, or rather, rewinding back to 2020, in August of 2020, Belarus had a fraudulent election in which uh, Lukashenko claimed victory. In the lead up to that 2020 election, the opposition, uh, the main opposition candidate, who was a noted critic of Belarusian ties to Russia, was arrested on charges of organizing mass unrest and inciting social hatred. So this opposition leader, uh, Sikhanuski, he announced his candidacy via YouTube from a prison cell. So um, interesting you know, overlap between new technologies as well in this uh, sort of gray zone arena. Ultimately, however, you know, he was in prison. He was unable to run and his wife ran for office in his stead, campaigning on the platform of free elections. However, the Lukashenko regime claimed victory in the election, and the United States has officially deemed that that was a rigged election. There were massive protests that made worldwide news. And in response to the protests, the Lukashenko government responded with violent repression and torture of detainees. Uh, as of March 2022, 
Lukashenko regime still had over 1,100 political detainees, and that is obviously a a disturbing statistic, Um, but also disturbing is that Lukashenko reached out to Vladimir Putin for aid on account of this popular unrest. There was a televised address in which Lukashenko characterized the protests that the fraudulent elections he orchestrated as, quote, a threat not to just to Belarus. If Belarusians do not hold out, the wave will head over there, too, there being Russia. So, again, we see this um, patina of legitimacy um, being laid to justify gray zone sort of unlawful action and intervention. Later that same day, Lukashenko and Putin had a phone call in which Vladimir Putin reportedly promised, quote, comprehensive help to ensure the security of Belarus. And that led to an extension of $1.5 billion to the Lukashenko government. Yeah, and now, and to this day now, fast forward, now they're pretty uh, faithful allies of most things that Russia wants to do, seemingly, right? Exactly. You know, late, the, the groundwork was laid back in 2020. The ties were formed and solidified between Russia and one of its neighbors. Russia was able to extend its sphere of influence into Belarus under these very suspect circumstances. But then two years later, 2022, the Putin regime was able to uh, reap the rewards of its of its efforts, of its planning, and they were able to strategically locate their military assets close to the Ukrainian capital as they were uh, posturing for this unprovoked, unlawful war in which the Ukrainians and Russians are still involved. Yeah, it's crazy. So switching gears uh, just a little bit, we saw, so there's, there's a couple examples there, right? So there's um, Georgia and Belarus where Russia attempts to influence elections and or political decision-making with varying levels of success. And depending on how that goes, they either uh, win without having to fire a shot, and now they have a government like Belarus that is, uh, you know, is willing to support them in their endeavors to keep expanding that sphere of influence, or they have one uh, like Georgia where they end up having, you know, having a little less success politically. So they use military force um, to come in uh, similar to the way they did with, or, and are trying to do with Ukraine. So jumping across the Atlantic now to, uh, to the United States, we see uh, at least, some version of the first part of that influencing elections over here. Tell us about uh, kind of about that and how you talked about the Russian interference in U.S. elections. Yes, sir. You know, I, I kind of have a, a mental, you know, Venn, Venn diagram, right? At the outset, we were discussing the domestic gray zone threats and foreign gray zone threats. But then there's this you know, very alarming overlap. And I think everyone is familiar to some degree or another with the Russian interference in the United States elections. And this, as we've discussed, this action of interfering with free and fair elections is nothing new to the Russians. 
and they've had success in the past. And so in 2016, they reached out and they interfered in the United States elections. Of course, there was the Mueller investigation. And in my paper, I quote, you know, extensively from it. And it says, you know, unambiguously, Russia interfered in the 2016 presidential election. And uh, that is something that we as Americans need to uh, not lose sight of going um, going forward. Right, because <laughs> interestingly, Russia seems to have found a way to win whether their candidate wins or not. Their, if their preferred side can, uh, can gain enough power, then they can have a friendly uh, nation state on the other side. And if their preferred candidate does not or if there's so much unrest, they, they win by their opponents uh, experiencing large amounts of civil unrest, too. Precisely, precisely. And, um, you know, and just to, uh, you know, to be clear, um, you know, a lot of this is being done on social media. That's one of the primary prongs through which this Russian interference happened. But this isn't just, you know, some individuals here and there who happen to be Russians. Like, this is an orchestrated effort. You know, uh, there's a federal grand jury has indicted seven Russians, and all of those named defendants are officers in the GRU, or the Russian Main Intelligence Directorate. You know, this is, this is not an accident. This is a deliberate attempt to undermine the United States government. Right, which is, yeah, like you said, pretty pretty scary and something we should probably be keeping our eye on, the fact that there are other competitors who have found ways or are continuing to attempt to find ways to influence the ways that we um, not just think, but actually vote and run our country, which is, you know, one one definition of, of gray zone activity. You, Exactly. It's that it falls outside the traditional peace war you know, duality, but it's definitely action being conducted by the Russian state to further its strategic goals at the expense of the United States, national security and strategic goals. Right. So then the last kind of um, chapter of this Russian influence before we get kind of talking about your uh, – uh, the U.S. response is uh, is the the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine that at this moment of recording in June of 22 is uh, is still ongoing. So talk about the I guess the gray zone elements of that and the buildup. Yes, sir. So the the groundwork had been laid in the various conflicts we had already discussed, um, and then one thing that I wanted to draw attention to in my paper that I think has been overlooked in light of the very, you know, shocking um, circumstances surrounding the current invasion of Ukraine is the Russian influence and intervention in Kazakhstan in February of 2022, immediately right on the doorstep of the invasion of Ukraine. Russia deployed so-called, you know, peacekeeping forces to Kazakhstan. And the thing there that I think is a significant difference is that it wasn't a unilateral Russian activity. There were also forces from Armenia, Belarus, 
Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, right? The the CSTO regional alliance led by Russia as sort of a, a counter to NATO forces. Um, and so again, we see this patina of legitimacy being used again, but in a more concrete way. The patina is, I don't know, getting getting thicker and stronger from repeated use. Um, but then with this, you know, current invasion of Ukraine, they were able to posture forces, as we discussed in in Belarus, and then 24 February, the invasion was launched. And now we turn to the sort of linking this to the the topic of your paper and the topic of the National Security Law Writing Competition, which is all right, the role of U.S. national security law in our strategic competition in the gray zone. So a lot of a lot of examples of what our strategic this particular strategic competitor is doing in the gray zone and how it is expanding its influence um, over in Eastern Europe and even attempting to here domestically. So what how would you characterize the US response legally? How is our national security law up to this point confronted this particular threat? Yeah, in my opinion, the US has a very understandable and appropriate goal in preserving peace, but however, that emphasis on preserving peace has had oftentimes the unintended consequence of not providing sufficient assurance to American allies and deterrence to American adversaries. And that and that's the result of, as I described in the paper, you know, leaving some of these tools unused on the table. That applies in both the international examples we've discussed as well as domestic examples. Um, you know, the use of economic sanctions without any kind of proportionate or corresponding increase in direct military aid, or if any kind of direct military aid is given, it is not in an amount that is correlative to the threat American allies overseas are facing. So now, that being said, since I've written this paper, things have started to change, uh, and the United States is moving more in the direction that I recommended and described, um, increased amounts of aid, Notably, there was the NATO summit this this very week, um, where there were some tremendously important announcements made. Uh, I think arguably the biggest one being the announcement of a permanent U.S. installation in in Poland. Obviously, the you know a Ukrainian border state, uh, a NATO ally that has been in the shadow of Russia for a long time, and by the, reposturing American forces in this very significant way, I think the United States is going to be able to send a much clearer deterrent message to Russia going forward. I guess really now that they've now that the US and NATO have ratcheted up the response a bit past what it was when you were initially drafting this paper, um, the jury's jury's out now to see what kind of deterrent effect that will have going forward and how how our allies perceive our uh, our willingness to do what's necessary. Exactly. 
So we're going to we're going to loop back around and talk more about more specifics about your kind of uh, policy recommendations and how we could better wield national security law. But first, we're going to describe the other prong of this threat, the uh, the domestic side of things. And uh, I mentioned earlier, um, this was fairly novel for me. So I'm, I'm excited to hear you talk about these gray zone threats that are coming from uh, inside the house, the uh, the domestic right wing uh, extremists. The, that's the example you give particularly. And um, wanted to ask you, what sort of like organizations and actions are you getting at here when you're talking about the uh, these uh, actors in the gray zone domestically? Yes, sir. So I think there's a line. It's not it's not a clear line, but between ordinary crime and crime that threatens the Constitution of the United States, crime that is undertaken with a mindset that criminal acts are not wrong, but are in fact rightful and lawful in some abstract, personal, you know, self-righteous sense. Um, and over the years, um, you know, long before the January 6th insurrection, there have been examples of right-wing extremists violating the law, taking hostile actions against the United States government. And again, um, in a parallel fashion to the perhaps underwhelming response to Russian aggression, the response domestically to foreign extremists, or excuse me, uh, to domestic extremists was similarly underwhelming in a way that did not deter future misconduct and what started, as I argue, as arguably minor infractions escalated until we get to January 6th with the national yeah. capital coming under attack. Right. You kind of draw a line from uh, a herd of cows to the attack on the Capitol. And would love for you to kind of start with the uh, the Bundy family and, and, and their actions and how those sort of meet the definition we've been using of uh, gray zone activity. Yes, sir. So, again, uh, citing back to that definition, the gray zone encompasses state actors and non-state actors. And so... Using that definition, I think the Bundy family and their supporters are exactly the kind of non-state actors that uh, engage in gray zone activity that is detrimental to the United States and its interests. Um, Give us a little background on the Bundy family. Like, where where do they operate? What do they operate? And uh, what do they? I guess kind of what are they after? What's their angle? Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, this uh, this goes back. Goes back decades, and as you said, it started started with grazing and some cattle. So um, at, back in the the 90s, the Bundy family and their associates were illegally grazing their cattle on protected federal land. Right, so that trespass, a violation of the law, trespass. Um, this uh, trespass followed decades of tension, you know, which included pipe bombings at federal offices in the 1990s, threats by extremists against the Bureau of Land Management 
after the Bureau of Land Management plan to round up the illegally grazing cattle uh, in 2012. And the BLM, you know, the Bureau of Land Management, you know, backed off in response to these extremist threats. Then after further provocation by the Bundys, the BLM decided not to enforce a federal court order it had won against the Bundys, prompting one of the Bundy family to announce, quote, we won the battle. So, I mean, and that I think is a very telling word, you know, not argument, battle, in which these individuals view the United States government as the bad guy. So um, that was the first, I don't know, the first round, if, if you will. Um, and then later on, you know, in light of that tepid response, domestic extremists, you know, learned, I think, and in 2016, a group led by Ammon Bundy began a occupation, an armed occupation of the Federal Wildlife Refuge in Oregon in response to the conviction of Dwight and Steve Hammond, who had committed arson on federal property. Right? We have these people engaging in retaliatory, hostile acts against the federal government. And this band of extremists, they held that refuge, they held federal territory for 41 days. 41 days. During that time, you know, the administration made multiple attempts to negotiate, but the situation was finally resolved only when one of the extremist leaders was killed while attempting to evade arrest. And so, obviously, we have an obligation to uphold the law to respect people's due process, but there's also an obligation on members of the civil service, members of law enforcement, to defend the union and defend the, the federal government. Um, and, you know, I think the, the very slow, the very calculated, tepid responses were sending the wrong, the wrong message. Yeah, I get 